Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Spatial Navigator podcast. Today we share a conversation recorded in the latest HBT, where we welcome two special guests from Down Under. They are working together in the field of virology, the very unique and precious set of samples, the ones from the 1918 Spanish flu. During this episode, you will hear why a virologist and the spatial omics expert joined forces with the aim to answer one particular question. Can spatial multi-omics be used on historical samples to determine what was unique about the immune response in young adults? This is the Spatial Navigator podcast brought to you by Nanostring. As the pioneer in the field of spatial biology, Nanostring enables scientists to see the multi-omic expression of genes and proteins in the natural context of tissue structure. In this podcast series, we present the work that researchers are doing in the field and share initiatives to engage and support them. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Kirsty. I'm a virologist from the University of Queensland, and I absolutely love studying all things about viruses, in particular viral pandemics and how these tiny little microorganisms that aren't even alive can fundamentally shift human history. And we've seen that 100 years ago, but we've also, of course, seen that with the COVID-19 pandemic. And that's how Arutha and I started working together. So my name is Arthur Krulasinga. I lead a spatial omics lab at the University of Queensland. And so early in the pandemic, we had some incredible collaborators in Brazil and, and the US send us these autopsy tissues. And they were trying to figure out, um, you know, where is the virus in the lungs? What's going on? And so we were applying spatial methodologies to understand where, what was happening at a cellular level. And so that's when I reached out to Kirsty's lab and we had to bring in the subject experts. Again, my lab focuses on cancer research and so it's very different. We focus on lung cancer. For now, can- we're, slowly, <laughs> we're slowly yeah. getting you into infectious yeah. disease. So we're, you know, lung cancer. So we were trying to understand lung as an organ, what's going on when you have infection. And so, you know, collaborating with your lab. Over the last couple of years, we've had seven or eight really nice publications looking at the impact of COVID on the lungs, the heart, the brain, and the placenta, all published studies. Again, it's a very new field for us, but it's a really exciting space where infection and chronic diseases are overlapping and we're learning new biology using these methods. And I think from our perspective, it's been amazing because the spatial technology is not something that is that common in my yeah. field. And, you know, we certainly don't have the technical expertise to do mm. that level of analysis. So it's a yeah. really nice collaboration. Mm. I think initially we sort of look at low hanging fruit, so immuno-oncology and all of that, but working in COVID with your teams in particular, we realized the impact of this on infection. And so we're really excited by not just, you know, the COVID-19 studies, but all the archival studies that your lab leads. How did the 1918 influenza project get underway? (laughs) I actually don't remember the exact details. I think it was from working together and just discussing and the power of spatial, and then sort of saying, how old can spatial go? (laughs) Yeah, so I think Kirstie, pinged us after some of the initial COVID lung studies and she said, hey, crazy idea. We've got these collaborator of ours have these hundred year old Spanish flu tissues. And so we'd been in the lab looking at five year old, 10 year old tissues, again, cancer samples, and we knew we could do archival tissues. And so I thought, you know, why not? Let's push it as far as we can go, send the tissues over, we'll run it. If there's a technology that we can use that's likely to give us powerful information of FFPE tissues, this is probably it. And so, yeah, it was on the whim of a, I don't know, just, yeah. Crazy idea. Yeah, crazy idea. And And then we had a, um, we have a joint PhD student who was sent around the world 
best PhD project ever. <laughs> Sent around the world, going through museums and pathology records, and physically going through the records because a lot of them are not computerized, and looking for samples that met our criteria. And so we have now samples from the 1918 Spanish flu, but also from the lesser known, but probably no less significant 57 and 68 flus. So we can really do a comparison now of the host response across these pandemics, which yeah. I think is pretty exciting. Yeah, but also in adults and, and children. Yeah, well. and, and one of the things we really wanna look at with this is that 1918 was really, really unusual in that the people that were hardest hit were those between say 18 and 30. And the elderly generally did quite well. Side note, when my mum was complaining about, you know, having to be locked down and protected in COVID-19, had to explain to her she was just living through the wrong pandemic. <laughs> if she was in 1918, it would have been fine and I would have been the one locking down. So what's really interesting is that that was a really unique feature of 1918. You didn't see it in 57, you didn't see it in 68, you didn't see it in 2009. Mm. So what was it about that response in the 1918 pandemic in young people that was mm. so different that was leaving them susceptible mm. to severe infection? And that's one of the things we hope yeah. to answer. Yeah, and I think the beauty of the study is we're going back in time, but we can now compare multiple respiratory viruses, including COVID, to 100-year-old 1918, which is, to me, it's a, you know, it's, it's a crazy study, but I mean, it's so well designed and developed and we have the right material. I think we have the right technology now. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's an incredible project. We're really excited by it. It's funny, like I, um, so my disclosure is I have an arts degree in addition to my science degree. <laughs> and um, a lot of my arts degree I was focused on, I did a lot of Asian studies, but I did a lot of medical history as well. Okay. And one of the things is that you're really taught that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. And as humans, for better or worse, we sort of seem to apply the same techniques, yeah. make the same mistakes. Yeah. And I think we saw that with COVID-19, mm. where a lot of the fundamental principles of public health were the mm. same mm. as 1918. Mm. And so there's so much we can learn mm. from these archival samples, even just from the perspective of pandemic preparedness. Yeah. And so to that end, what is the initial findings and, and what sample types were, were you looking at? What tissue types? So at the moment, what we've got is really proof of principle. We've got proof of principle that we can do this sort of advanced analysis on tissue that's over 100 years old and wasn't necessarily preserved no. in the best way. So at the moment, that's sort of the main message. I don't know, Ruth, if you want to... Yeah, so what we found was working with Kirsty's team is using the geomics and looking at the protein and RNA data, we had a pathologist annotate what regions we were sampling. And so when we looked at the histology annotations of the tissue with the RNA and protein data, that separated out the signal. And so this is real signal at a molecular level that is being separated out based on your RNA and protein profiles of that specific lung pathology. And so that showed us that this is real signal coming from these tissues, and it gave us confidence to now expand the study into the whole, you know, all the samples we have now for this study. We wanted to push the envelope and see, could we do it in 1918? And we can. We can get solid RNA data, solid protein data. And so now we can expand this and run the whole study, look at the multiple pandemics, um, multiple age groups, because we know the hardest sample to look at, we're getting good signal from that. So it's all downhill from here, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What will the larger study involve? What pandemics, what types of tissue, and what is the sort of the general 
flow of that experimental design? So the first study, and hopefully this will be the first of many studies, if Ruth can put up with me, is looking at lung tissue and looking at lung tissue from younger individuals from 1918, 1957, 1968, 2009, and as well COVID, um, and really seeing what was different about the response in the 1918 samples that we know had much more severe disease. So what was going on, one of the sort of main theories about why individuals in these pandemics have had a severe response is that the immune response is just going out of control and it's over inflammation. So what aspect of that immune response is going out of control? What can we look at mm. there that we can potentially target you know, with uh, anti-inflammatories or certain drugs that are already licensed for use that we can stockpile for the next pandemic. Mm. Because I know people don't want to think about the next pandemic, but it's the mm. reality of the world we live in. I don't think of myself as that old and I've already lived through two pandemics. So mm. there will be another pandemic in my lifetime. And we really need to look back to the past to prepare us for the future. Yeah, absolutely. And our sort of goal with this project is also to understand the context of infection with chronic diseases like lung cancer and so on. So what does it mean for a lung cancer patient who gets COVID, right? And for the future, and these are conversations that started because of our work together. You know, the lung cancer community, we have patient advocates as part of our research that they're like, this stuff is really cool. We're starting to understand the impact of COVID on the lungs, but also on lung cancer. And so it's bringing all these chronic diseases together with infection. And so we're blurring the lines of disease biology, but it's important because these are things that impact multiple different vulnerable groups around the world. And I think that's a really interesting point. This was something we were discussing before that, you know, we now have a really unique population mm. where we have a lot of people who are older, a lot of people who are living with chronic medical mm. conditions, people who are living with cancer. And again, from a pure pandemic preparedness point, we need to have pandemic plans that mm. represent that population, that reflect mm. that population. Absolutely. And that this is not the population of 100 years ago mm. where you know people had a much shorter life mm. expectancy, people weren't on immunosuppressants mm. for cancer therapy. All these sort of complexities need to be integrated into our pandemic preparedness. Yeah, we have an incredible patient advocate, Annabelle Gowich, New York Times, selling author she was in the recent Michael Bay movie ambulance she went for a COVID test and found out she had lung cancer stage four lung cancer and so you know these are the conversations that are starting because of it and now we can start to answer potentially what is the impact of you know COVID infection on lung cancer patients and so on so and you know we generally like to stay in our research domains you know Kirsty would say she's a virologist I might say I'm a, I'm a technologist but now we're blurring the lines and I think that's where you have disruptive sort of breakthroughs mm. and you need to put people you know when we're doing we're having discussing data we have you know all the data scientists the people that ran the assays in the lab of Kirsty, we have a whole bunch of immunologists and we're discussing the data set we're speaking english but we're not really speaking english because we're interpreting it from our lens of whatever our discipline or subject expertise is and and that's fascinating right you're on a zoom call and trying to figure this out we did that for covid and i think that gave us confidence to now go and look at multiple pandemics and you know 100 year old studies which is which is pretty crazy and you know like there are for me i find these interdisciplinary collaborations the most rewarding mm. of all the studies i do and it's not necessarily always easy because as you say we're sometimes talking a different language mm. so it's sometimes a matter of like okay take it back to yeah. the basics yeah. explain it to me like i'm yeah. you know a person off the street mm. but you get there yeah. and it's so worthwhile because 
none of this, this is none of this I would be able to do on my yeah, own. Exactly. I just couldn't even conceive a study mm. like this. So mm. it's, yeah, it's pretty yeah. exciting stuff. We were on a Zoom call together during COVID and we just looked at the lungs of these COVID-19 patients, contrasted it to flu and normal sort of non-viral deaths. And we're showing the data to Kirsty. To us, type one interferons are up. We're like, yeah, don't know what it is. Kirsty on the other side shrieks on the Zoom call. I'm like, hold <laughs> on, wait, what? Explain this to us. And she explained that they've been looking at the blood and they see that's elevated um, and that signature was elevated. And so we had a lot of follow-up studies from that work, but it's just having the right people in the room to understand what you're looking at in this really sort of data-rich framework. And that's really exciting. So as a cancer researcher, is there any similarities across these inflammatory responses from, I know you can't study lung cancer, mm. but the, you know, uh, the um, immuno-oncology is a therapeutic. How yeah. does this interplay yeah. so, amongst the, yeah. the disease as well as the research? It's a great question. So, I mean, there was some really key studies from Charlie Swanton, a couple of Nature Medicine papers last year, which showed that lung cancer and chronic inflammation are linked. And so there is a direct correlation there. What we're finding is when we start to look at the immuno-oncology data, type 1 interferons are up, and now we're specifically looking at them because now we know the impact of you know, all the respiratory work. Um, there is a mixing of signal, which is great, which is what we want to see. And so it's helping us make informed decisions on how we interpret our data, but also not just throwing it away because, oh, that's just an inflammation signature. No, that's actually valuable. Um, and I think that we're learning a lot from that. So it's interesting whenever we look at uh, differentially expressed plots, I now start picking out all these, you know, these um, inflammation yep. signatures and I'm like, oh, this is going back to the COVID work. What, <laughs> what project are we working on here? Oh, it is lung cancer. It but never leaves No, me. it doesn't. So now it's ingrained and yeah, favorite genes pop up and that's super exciting. So, yeah. And I think in general, um, at least, you know, I work in infectious disease, you're seeing a lot more crossover between infectious disease and cancer, mm. not just in immunotherapy, mm. but also in things like vaccination, yeah. like all the mRNA vaccines yeah. are now being tried for cancer. Yeah. Um, and it's it's so important that we learn from other yeah. disciplines exactly. because one other discipline may have the tech developed mm. or a concept developed that yeah. then applies. So yeah. yeah, we need to be looking at That's these right. links. Yeah. There was a study a couple of years ago which showed that getting the annual flu jab improved your immunotherapy response because you had systemic inflammation through oh, the wow. body. And so there are spaces in which we can start to learn. And I'm, you know, all the mRNA COVID-19 work led to a lot of the new cancer mRNA vaccines that are being developed for advanced stage melanoma. And that was shown at AACR last year. There wasn't a seat that was empty in that room. And so this mRNA wave is impacting cancer. And then I think that's where it started, but we pivoted to COVID and um, a lot of crossover. So moving just back towards the technology for a minute, what's the benefit that you found in this particular study of using protein and RNA? And I know we, we separated them out as sequential or as, uh, serial sections, but what was the outcome of having both analyzed? I mean, I can talk about this as a, as a lay person, as somebody not across <laughs> the technology, and then Aretha can give you a much more sophisticated insight. But I think for me, it comes down to knowing 
first of all, understanding the immune response because we know that the immune response, you will see things in transcriptomics that you will not see in proteomics and vice versa. So it's a depth of analysis. But it's also, especially for this proof of principle work, it's also about knowing that the signal is real. Mm. When we start seeing the same thing on mRNA as well as on a protein level, you have confidence that this is not some sort of background signal, this is something that is robust and mm. reproducible. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, we ran both assays at the time because there's no other platform that's gonna give you 570 proteins that you can profile on tissue and get that redot so rapidly. And so we wanted to see we went in initially thinking, let's look at the whole transcriptome, but at the time the protein assay was available as well. So we ran them on serial sections and it gave us which assay is better, which assay is gonna work. And the data we got back showed us that we're getting signal of both, but there are challenges in some of the transcript data, which we have to work through now in the prospective work that we're leading. But the protein data was beautiful. And, and so, you know, when you look at the DE plots, it's just incredible that you've got conserved protein data in your tissues that are over hundred years old. So we're moving forward with both protein and RNA, and we're coupling this with multiplex immunofluorescence so we can really localize the signal to single cell readout, and hopefully in the future do some cosmics work as well. I think that's gonna really complement that. Coming from the tissue, where do you see the value of going to the single cell and why? This is a technical yeah. question <laughs> yeah. for Ruth. So, so I'll, I'll give you context for the COVID-19 lung study. We looked at the lungs of COVID-19 patients, we had a pathologist annotate them. Um, again, at the time, there wasn't a pathologist in the country that had seen the lungs of COVID-19 patients. We gave the same pathologist the Spanish flu tissues and she's like, I've never seen you know, this 1918 lungs before. And so we can start to annotate structures within the lungs, and this is what we did for the study. Um, you know, alveolar structures, bronchioles, and all of that liberate the whole transcriptome data. And so then we can compare between multiple pandemics and multiple structures in the lungs and so on. But then we can go in and narrow that down into certain signal with the cosmics. And so for the ERJ paper that we, we published in 2023, we compared using geomics multiple structures in the lungs and we contrasted it to flu. And then we identify this type one interferon signature, which we wanted to then localize in single cells using the cosmics. And so we just had that paper accepted in e-biomedicine, and that showed that the type 1 interferon signature was specific to a certain subset of macrophages. And so there is a space in which you use sort of high throughput workflows to then narrow it down into certain signals that you want to go localize and then use the single cell approaches. So they're very complementary. And especially, I think, because some of the signatures that we identified, and Aruta mm. led this study in these COVID lungs, these are signatures that are now being explored for not only biomarkers for COVID infection, mm. but also prognostic markers. And so when you talk about translating these markers into the clinic, mm. you need to have an understanding of what cells are producing mm. them. So you can know in what context is this an appropriate prognostic marker mm. to use and in which patients. And so that sort of insight feeds into a lot of the diagnostic work that's being mm. done. It's funny, we were reviewing some of the single cell data and again, cancer background, we were just like M1, M2 macrophages, let's keep it simple. And then we passed the data on to Kirsty's lab and she's like, no, hold on, there's so many different flavors of this <laughs> and so but this is this it gets more complicated but this is the benefit of working in an interdisciplinary team with people that understand the biology and the fundamental disease that we're looking at so then just to wrap up what will spatial biology provide as far as future opportunities in the face of a pandemic so i think some of the things that we've already discussed about follow-ups we're already planning follow-up mm -hmm. studies 
one of the things I really want to do is go back to these pandemics and we've talked about here about isolating the lung samples, but there's also a whole lot of extra respiratory tissues that are available from these individuals. So can we start looking at some of these extra respiratory complications? And you know, now we're having big discussions about long COVID and long COVID is a really big problem. My question to you is, is that something specific to coronaviruses? Or is that something that's happened before and we've never noticed it? And this has really important implications for pandemic preparedness because we need to start asking ourselves, is chronic long viral disease something that we need to integrate into our pandemic preparedness plan? Or is that only something relevant to coronaviruses? So from my perspective, mm. this is something we can answer from spatial transcriptomics on tissues outside of the lungs mm. and start getting an insight from past mm. pandemics. Absolutely, yeah. And I think some of our cardiac and placental work reflects that, you know, we went in looking for the virus in the heart, we couldn't identify it, but we could see clear differences in the cardiac tissues of COVID patients when we contrasted it to flu. And um, the same with the placenta, and that paper has um, now been accepted, it should come out in the next couple of days. Now we could see preeclampsia is up, there's a whole number of hypoxia signatures in COVID-19 in the heart. There's of DNA damage, fingerprint sort of, that we're finding. And so we're finding changes at the molecular level in organs that are distant to the lungs. And again, you know, is there transient virus? What, what's going on? So we don't know that, but I think spatial is giving us a new lens on biology to understand the impact of these viruses on the body. And we've got a brain study going on at the moment that is fascinating again brain tissues are fixed in formalin for 14 days so even with that harsh sort of treatment we're getting good signal off them and stay tuned for that study i think yeah thank you for listening to this episode of the spatial navigator podcast brought to you by nanostring if you'd like to know about nanostring products or contact us please visit nanostring.com you may also get in touch with us through linkedin instagram or twitter the links to which are in the description thank you